Welcome to Harvest Mission Community Church. You are listening to one of our sermons. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Romans chapter 7. We're continuing our series. I hope all of you have been enjoying it thus far. We're kind of past the halfway point, or we're right around the halfway point, and so we're looking forward to finishing off in the next several months, all the way up to, I believe it's going to go towards May. So we pray that you have a good grasp of this book. As you know, we've been talking about how many of us grew up in the church, and we have had this truncated gospel where it's always about you sin, Jesus Christ came and died on the cross for your sins, you receive Jesus Christ, and you are now a believer in Christ. And what happens is that then we live our lives for ourselves. We see this all the time. There's no discipleship, no heart for missions, no living out their faith in the workplace or in school. Pretty much you're dictated by whatever you want to do, and Christ is not Lord over all in your life. And this is why we have shared that it has to be the fuller picture of the gospel from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And we see this creation that God created all things, and he said it was good. But because of sin, what we see is the fall came. And because of that, everything that God intended that was good in his purpose now has been tainted with sin. The Israelites were chosen, but they failed in their calling to be a light to the Gentiles. So God sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross so that we could have new life. And now he invites us to be a part of this kingdom, that our allegiance is no longer to ourselves or to our parents, to this world, to our bosses, to people around us, but our allegiance is to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And this is the reason why, as you're part of this kingdom, as you are a citizen of God's kingdom, then you do the bidding of the king. And whatever it is that he desires for us to do, we follow and we obey. That's why we not only are redeemed, but now we are called to restore the things that God has intended. That's why when we love one another, that's why when we be able to reach out to the poor and those who are in need, when we bless people, forgive people, when we do all these things that God has called us to do, even in the teaching and the Beatitudes, that's when we begin to understand that we get a glimpse of what heaven's supposed to be like. And so I pray that this whole book of the Bible uh, in, in the book of Romans will just remind us that it's not just about salvation, but it's about our calling and what we're called to do. So we're at chapter 7. I'm excited to preach today's message to you because I believe it's going to be an encouragement. It's going to help you to grow in your relationship with God. So what we're going to start off with, I'm just going to ask a question. is simply this. When it comes to fighting sin, what do you do or what do you think is a better method for obeying God. So think about your life. Think about some other friends that you have. When it comes to struggling and battling with sin, what do you think is the better method to obey God? So right now, I'm going to give you two options. And just in your chat, uh, especially with your life group, go ahead and type that in, which one you think is a better option. There are two options that I'm going to give you. The first option is this, not knowing God's truth and doing your best to live a life of righteousness or righteous life, all right? So that is one option. So that's the first option. The second option is knowing God's truth and realizing that you cannot fully obey. So once again, the first option is not knowing God's truth and doing your best to live a righteous life, or option number two, knowing God's truth and realizing that you cannot fully obey. 
Go ahead and put that type one or two in the chat so that you can know amongst your life group members where everyone is. If you chose option number one, then I think it's really easy for many of you who did choose one to depend on yourself and trying to live this righteous life according to your standards. Why? Because you don't know God's standard. You don't know God's truth. So a lot of it is our own standard, what we think is right or wrong. And so it's really a self-centered righteousness that we use to judge all these other people. If you chose option number two, then what will happen to many of us is we're going to start feeling the weight of sin in our lives, and it's going to crush us. And that is going to cause us to not only get disillusioned, depressed, definitely discouraged, to the point where many of us who, are, who have experienced this will then slowly drift away and say, you know what, this Christianity thing is not working for me. So as you can tell, both of those options are not very good. And I think this is something that we have to come to the realization is that there are many of us who don't know God's truth. And so many of us begin to live this own self-righteous life according to our standard, what we think is good or bad. It could be dictated by culture. It could be dictated by your parents or things that you read in, the, in your different books or in movies. And so you have this idea of what holiness or righteousness or living a good life might be. Those of us who know the truth and the word of God, the struggle is real. There are a lot of things that God wants us to do that we do not do, and those things that we should not do, we continue to do. And so in this battle, what we see is that the question we have to ask ourselves is how do we overcome the struggle and this fight with sin? This is the reason why I think all throughout the book of Romans thus far, the focus has been on not on ourselves, but on Jesus Christ and this idea of the grace of God. Today, I really pray that as you hear this word and as we look at what the word of God is speaking to us, that we'll have a better grasp about the need for the grace of God in our lives. That any of us who are opting for one or we're opting for number two as an option, that we will relinquish that and realize that it is only through Jesus Christ and the grace of God that we're going to find victory in our struggle with sin. I think when you look at the last some chapters, especially in chapter six, you realize that he mentions something. Apostle Paul mentioned something that was so important. He says that you cannot obey the law and then become righteous on your own. He made it very clear. You cannot earn it. In fact, he says you will fail. You're going to struggle. And that's why this grace is needed so that we can trust not in ourselves, not in our righteousness, but on Jesus Christ. So that we are no longer slaves to sin, but as we have seen even in last week's Bible study in Galatians, that we are a son or daughter of God. So I want you to think about something now, uh, something that some of us might have experienced. Uh, maybe some of you have not. But I want to ask you what normally or usually happens when you begin to receive or experience a time where you receive something that's very expensive that you were not deserving of, but you received it for free. I want you to think about that for a moment. Something that's very expensive, maybe even something that you desired, 
but then there, there's nothing that you did to earn it or to get it, but someone actually gave it to you for free as a gift. And if you know, if you've been in that situation, you know the emotion that it elicits in our, in our response. First of all, there is a sense of uh, just bewilderment or confusion. Like, why are, you, why are you doing what you're doing? Like, I don't understand. Like, that's the question. Like, why? Why are you being generous? Why are you, why are you giving this to me? Then once you realize that it's not a joke, that it's not a, a, a prank, but it's real, then normally what begins to happen is that the realization that this is real really turns into a heart of thanksgiving and gratitude. Uh, I wanted to show you this quick video to kind of illustrate this. Because once again, it's about the grace of God that will enable us to fight sin. So we need to have a good grasp of this. Uh, there's a YouTuber who has uh, millions and millions of followers. And what he does is that he, he likes to create epic moments that causes people just to be totally blown away. And just blessing people in many different ways as they see this and w witness this on YouTube. So one of the things that he did, and it wasn't really a prank, but it was, it was a real kind of gesture, what he did was he actually gave free uh, laptops to people who didn't have a computer or didn't have a laptop. So he would go to college campuses and just start asking people, do you own a laptop? Do you have a laptop? And if they don't, he would just give it for free. So I'm going to show you this video. It was just one of the clips that, um, that's on YouTube. And what I want you to focus in on is just watch the reaction of the people who are receiving this. How they first are in shock, they don't believe it, they think it's a joke, but then they slowly realize it's true. He has to reaffirm them that it is true, that he's just giving it out because that person doesn't have a laptop. And I want you to then watch their face and their faces and their reactions to this gesture. So let's watch this video together and then we'll come back and talk about this topic. All right, did you see the response of those people? I mean, they were shocked, and I thought it was interesting that the, one, the girl that received it, the second one, she actually went back and to thank him personally, and she was sharing that it was her birthday the following Tuesday, and, you know, this does something to your heart. Not only as a person who's watching this, hopefully you've got some of these good feelings in you, but especially if you are the recipient of that free gift that you did not deserve. And what it does, as many of you probably have experienced and witnessed before, is that not only does it fill your heart with thankfulness, but there's something that kind of tugs at you then to do things that are good, not motivated to get something back, but because you have first received, that now you want to do something to bless others. I think this is the very essence of trying to understand how grace, the grace of God, interplays into the struggle with sin in your life. I am going to help you to see from this passage in chapter 7 that there are some of us who will come to the realization that if you are operating under the law, as we've been talking about for the last five, six, some chapters, 
And if you have been doing a lot of things to earn your own self-righteousness or to look good in front of other people, that you will not be motivated because you have received and understood the grace of God. And it will crush you when it comes to the issue of sin. But when you come to the realization that a lot of these things that you do not deserve, and it moves your heart into gratitude because God has loved you when you were not deserving. When it comes to the struggle with sin, you're going to want to fight. And you're going to want to turn and depend on God that much more. I love what Brendan Manning said in his book, The Ragamuffin Gospel. He writes this. We should be astonished at the goodness of God, stunned that he should bother to call us by name, our mouths wide open at his love, bewildered that at this very moment we are standing our whole, on holy ground. D- did you get that? What he's sharing is that when you really begin to understand the gospel, it should leave us astonished and stunned. And what is it rooted in? It is rooted in the goodness of God. That God is good and we are not. That God is holy and we are unholy. That God is righteous and we are unrighteous. And the more we begin to understand that God is so different from us, but yet he relates to us as he pours out his love and his mercy and his grace upon us, it will motivate us now when we struggle with this issue of sin that's still in our lives. It will motivate us to want to love him back. And part of loving him is to say no to things that hinder our relationship with him. So the more we understand and comprehend his goodness, his love, his grace in our lives, the more we're going to be able to trust in him and his power to overcome sin in our lives. So let me give us the one thing. The one thing is simply this. The power of sin might be affecting us. Some of you right now, you're experiencing it. You're being ravished by it. You're discouraged by it. You are going through things in your life. The power of sin might be affecting us right now, but God in his power is perfecting us. And that word perfecting is maturing. That idea of perfection is not that we will fully become perfect, but more and more we will become like Jesus Christ. So the power of sin might be affecting us, but God in his power is perfecting us. So I wanted to go ahead and remind us once again, the one thing that we're going to focus in on is that in the struggle with sin, that the power of sin affects us. And we have to be able to acknowledge that. But it's through God and in his power that will perfect us. So let me go ahead and talk about two things we have to remember as we look at Romans chapter 7. The first thing that we need to understand as we're kind of struggling through with sin and how it affects us, so that through his power that can perfect us, is that we must first be understand that we are released by God's grace. We are released in this struggle and bondage to sin because of God's grace. Let me go ahead and read verses 1 and 3. This is what the word of God says. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law 
And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Uh, this is important to kind of talk through this because this is going to be the foundation of what he's trying to argue for all throughout chapter 7 in the book of Romans. The Apostle Paul starts off this chapter by explaining how the law no longer binds us. We're not bound by the law that all the Jewish people were trying to observe to earn salvation or righteousness. Because once again, we have to learn how to die to ourselves and allow Christ, his death, and his resurrection to be appropriated into our lives so that we are now made alive in Jesus Christ. I want you to look at the phrase, the law is binding on a person. Do you see that phrase? You will notice in verse 1 when it says that in other translation, in the NIV, it says the law has authority over a man. The New American Standard Bible says the law has jurisdiction over a person. And then the New King James Version says the law has dominion over a man. So what it's simply saying is this. The law that was given to the Israelite people, that law was binding. It had dominion over them. It had jurisdiction over them. It had the authority over them. And in many ways, by obeying the law, they were made righteous, or so they thought. But there were so many things going on inside their hearts that even though they were trying to observe all these things, they failed to understand that the sinfulness of their own lives. Even though they were the chosen people, they forgot that there's sin in their lives. Now, this is what the power of law has over us, especially before Jesus Christ came and fulfilled the law for us. This is very important to understand because earlier in chapter 6, verse 14, you need to note this, is that Paul says we are free from the law because Jesus Christ died and made us alive in him. Let me give you that verse. It says in the English Standard Version, for sin will have, say this with me, no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. So what he's saying is that you're no longer, uh, this law is not over you anymore because you are now under this realm and this regime of grace. And because of that, it will not have dominion over you. You cannot try to observe it to earn salvation because Christ has earned it for us. Now, the key that you have to ask yourself, then why does he give this illustration about a marriage? Because oftentimes the Apostle Paul uses everyday illustrations, just like Jesus did, so that people could understand what this theological point that he's trying to make, what it is and how clearly they need to understand it. So let me try to unpackage this. When you look at verses 2 and 3, we see that there is an illustration about a woman who's married. So there's a woman who's married, and that means that she is bound to that covenant of that marriage that she made that vow with her husband and before God. Now, he says that as long as that man, her husband, continues to live, you are bound by that covenant. But then he says, but the, if the husband dies, then she is released or set free from the law of marriage because he's dead. So you're no longer married. And so because of that, you are now free to either marry somebody else or to remain single. But if he is alive and then she leaves to marry another man, then it says that you will be known as an adulteress. So therefore... 
The reason why he gives this illustration is he's simply saying death breaks the law of marriage and sets the woman free. In the same way, Jesus Christ died so that we could be set free from this law that governs us, that sometimes oppresses us because we cannot fully obey it, that Jesus Christ obeyed the law so that now he could set us free. So if you want to take it one step further, you could look at it as Jesus Christ is now the new husband because once again, the law has died when he died on the cross, fulfilled it now because he is resurrected and he has completely obeyed the fullness of the law that now we are in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, why is this important? Because he is reiterating this importance of the relationship. That it's not about the rules, the do's and don'ts of trying to be this good Christian. But it's about that relationship with Jesus Christ. Do you know him? Do you worship him? Do you lay your life before him with everything that you have? Do you give of yourself to him? It's about the relationship. It's not about the rules. It's not about the religion, but it's about the relationship. Now, if you jump down to verse 4, all the way through verse 14 in these 10, 11 verses, Apostle Paul now applies these principles to the believer's relationship to the law. So he's saying that the law now does not have dominion over us. Why? Because Christ died, resurrected, and because of that, through baptism, as we talked about last week, we died and we rose again with Christ. We identify with him. Because of that, now, what does this mean for us when it comes to our relationship with the law? I'm going to go ahead and share two things here that I want you to note. The first is that we are released from the law. That's what Paul is trying to emphasize, that we are released from the law, and it's through grace. Let me go ahead and read verse 4 through 6 to help us to see that. He says, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to, one and, uh, to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Verse 6, But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we observe or we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So what do we see here? This is important. As we have died to the law, we are now set free from sin so that now we can bear fruit for God. Now think about this for a moment. Those of us who are pre-Christians, we're glad that you're here. I, I, you need to understand this. Your heart has not been regenerated by the Spirit of God. To those of us who are believers and followers of Jesus Christ, some of us are still giving ourselves over to sin and the realm of the principalities of dark forces. We see that in the book of Ephesians about the spiritual warfare that's going on. Some of us are in bondage. Some of us are deceived. Some of us are living in sin. And because of that, one of the things that he says is that when we are living in that kind of set, you will not be able to bear fruit for God. There are a lot of things that some of you are doing that are good things, but it's not going to be lasting fruit. And I share this in, in, in just 
in a humble way, I hope you could understand my heart. There are many of you who are serving, many of you who are doing a lot of things for God, but the thing is that they are not the lasting fruit that we see. Why? Because some of us, we do it for ourselves. Some of us are doing it because we want to try to please somebody else. Some of us are doing it because we want to show people how great we are. Because of that, even though you may be talented, you may be capable, you may be competent, so it looks like there's fruits, as if people are coming to know Christ, or maybe just things are happening in your life group. Things are happening at work. But the question is, are these fruits really fruits for God? And what he says clearly is that when we die to the law and we're set free from sin, that now we can bear the fruit that is given to God and God alone. That's why when you look at verse 5, Paul highlights the fact that when we are living in the flesh, we produce fruits that lead to death. I want you to read the different translations of verse 5 so that you can understand what he's trying to reiterate here. In the New Living Translation, he says this, and read the yellow section with me. He says, when we were controlled by our old nature, sinful desires were at work within us. And the law, what did it do? Come on, say this with me. Arouse these evil desires that produce a harvest of sinful deeds resulting in death. Listen to how the message translation translates verse 5. It says, for as long as we lived that old way of life, doing whatever we felt we could get away with, sin was calling most of the shots as the old law code hemmed us in. And this made us all what? Come on, all the more rebellious. That's what happens. And some of us right now are feeling this, even though you are a follower of Jesus Christ, because you have not surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. You are still in control of your life. You are still dependent on yourself. Some of you are still self-sufficient. You have no need for Christ. That's why you might go days without even communing with God, even praying and communicating with God. You're just living this life on your own strength. Some of us are to the point where he describes we are rebellious and say, God, I don't need you in my life. This is what happens when we see here, when we live in this old nature. Now, to those of us who are alive, it says what? Now we can serve in a new way of the Spirit, and we're going to bear spiritual fruit. I think this is important. Whenever we trust in God, whenever we depend on God, that's when we see spiritual fruit that lasts. The scary thing is that a lot of times the fruit that leads to death and also the fruit that's the spiritual life that has life, sometimes it looks the same. You cannot distinguish from the beginning. But over a course of time, you can begin to tell which one is the fruits that will last and those that are going to pass away. Paul talks about that even to the people of Corinth. Anything made of hay and straw and all these things will be completely passed away, will be burned up, and only those things of silver and gold will remain. So what is Paul trying to say? What he's saying is that our motivation has changed now because we have died to ourselves, we have died to a the life of sin, we have died to the law, trying to earn salvation and do all the right things. We have died to that. And now we're looking to Jesus to fully help us to obey. 
that's when he says that we will now no longer say to ourselves, I have to, but now I get to. Some of you heard me say this many times before, and I see this time and time again. There are many of us, when you, when you watch your language, when you watch what you say, many of us have this obligatory type of mindset where it's something that I have to do. Oh, go to life. Oh, I have to go to life group. Or serving in the church, you're like, oh, gosh, I have to serve. I have to get up in the morning. I have to serve. Every single time that comes out of your mouth, every single time you witness this in other people, without judging them, I want you to be able to understand what's going on. Whenever we have this sense of, I have to, that is a person that has forgotten not only the grace of God, that now they are operating under the law. Whether God's going to punish them. It, it, it's kind of interesting because there are times when people are struggling with different things. And it, it's interesting because it almost seems as if they can bargain with God. So if there's a big decision, or maybe they're applying for something, a job, or maybe grad school, or internship, whatever it may be. That's when you see a lot of like soaps being sent out. That's when you see a lot of prayers being lifted up. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I think it is good to send out soap and to lift up prayer requests and do all that kind of stuff. But if you really think about it, a lot of times we're trying to bargain with God. Or on the other hand, if some of us have sinned, we messed up, we hurt some people, and the reality that some other people are going to find out. So we're bargaining with God. God, don't put the punishment too big. May the consequences not be so severe. So what do we do? We do our soap, we lift up our prayers, and we try to serve, go to life group that we haven't gone for many weeks, many months. All those things are exposing your heart. You're doing it because you're trying to earn something or trying to avoid something. With that kind of heart, as you try to serve God and do things for God, it's always, it will always be, I have to. Can I ask us right now, it, it, does that describe you this morning? I have to? Or is it, I get to? Because I don't deserve this. I shouldn't even be alive today. God delivered me from that car accident. I don't know how I survived. When I think about where my life is right now and where it could have been if I did not receive this gospel message, I would have been a mess. I would have still been in an addictive behavior. I would have still struggled in that bad, toxic relationship. I would have still been going through all this stuff. And when you think about the grace and the mercy that God has poured out into your life through his goodness and his love for us, unconditional, then you realize that everything that you're doing, whether you're serving, reading the Bible, prayer, or helping other people, it's more not I have to, but I get to. I get to serve. I get to give. That's why I keep on saying that those who have experienced the grace of God are generous people. I, I will die on that principle. So whenever I meet stingy people, they haven't experienced the grace of God. They're still under the law. They're operating under the law. 
Because when you have received things that you don't deserve, then your heart is so overwhelming with thankfulness and wanting to just bust open and be able to give other people to other people and bless other people. Whether it's your time, whether it's your treasures, or whether it's your talent. It's a fact. That's why those who have received grace, they're usually the most generous people. Because freely you have received, freely you give. Because it's not yours. You don't deserve it. I get to, Lord, I get to bless people in our city and give. I get to bless that person in my life group as I buy them coffee. I get to bless them with my time, even though I don't have much time, but I want to I wanna still meet with them because I want to give up myself and listen and to be a blessing to them. So no longer do we just obey a set of rules, but now from a transformed heart because of God's love, we obey God's spirit. That should be our motivation as we try to fight sin. Not because of fear, not because we want to avoid something, not because we're trying to beg God for something, but because of what he has already done. Now, the interesting part is this is the difference between doing something mechanically and doing something as an art. Let me explain what I mean by this. When you do things mechanically, then it's kind of like I have to. But when you do it more artistically, it's more of I get to. And I'm going to give an illustration to help you to understand this. Some of you know that I am on a 700 and close to 32-day Duolingo streak. Now, those of you who do not know what Duolingo is, it is a language learning app on your phone. So I've been going strong for the last two plus some years, every single day, like five minutes or 10 minutes sometimes when I get in my zone and, you know, I don't have much to do. I'm just, instead of like watching something, I'm just doing this language because I want to continue to grow and to learn. Even at this older age, it's harder to learn, but I want to keep on learning. And so I have reached all the way to the highest level. And that doesn't mean I've gotten very far. It's just that shows that you have done it enough times that you reached this level. And by this time, you have people who are like experts or those who are really good at it. So now when I look at Duolingo and when I look at this app, the first, I don't know how many, like 10, 12 some lessons, I could just do it really quickly. Because I recognize the character and then I just push that button and you hear that ding. And I'm like, yes, it's like a positive reinforcement. So let me show you just the app. And so you'll see it right in front of you. So this is kind of how the app looks like. And so when I look at this Duolingo font, it's like mechanical. I, I know this. You, you could, how? I, you know, Jen, you, you, you could put this on me and I'll get it anytime. I think that's me and then Zai, Right? You, you, boom, you, you just put this right in front of my face. I'll tell you what it is. So the story goes, I, I was at an executive team summit. And somebody was, we were just talking about random stuff. And someone said, oh, yeah, Pastor Seth, how's your Duolingo coming along? You know, your study of Chinese. So I'm like, I'm on a streak for a couple of years now. They're like, wow, really? And, you know, we're just going back and forth. I don't know the exact content of the conversation, but pretty much that was the kind of feel. And so they said, okay, let's see. Let's see how good you are. So I said, okay. But I told them, 
Like, I can't read, like, full sentences, or if it's really hard characters, I don't know, but just, just, just some of the basic stuff. So, so what they did was they did not use the duolingo font. So let me give you some fonts of what it looked like. And I looked at this, I'm like, what is that? And then some of these people who knew that I was kind of doing this for some years now, a couple of years, they said, Pastor, you know this. This is so easy. And I'm looking at this, I'm like, huh. Now, these are just different fonts of, of, of the word, I think, Zai and Jian, right? And so I'm just like, I don't know what it is. And they kept on saying, you know this. You know this. And I'm like, I don't. I don't. What is this? And then somebody came up with this insightful revelation. Oh, Pastor Seth only knows Chinese characters in the duolingo font. So I'm looking at these fonts, and I'm like, I have no idea what that is. So what they did was they then went back to duolingo font, if you could put it back. And I said, oh, I know what that is. So what am I trying to say here? If you go back to the other fonts, when you're mechanical, you only know it one way. But then if you understand God's grace in more of an art form, you realize it doesn't matter what font it is, you will still know the character. Does that make sense? And so the point that I kind of drew out from that experience is that in order for me to really know Chinese and some of these simple characters, I got to be able to know it not just in the duolingo font. I got to know it in every font. Even some of those crazy fonts that you see there on the top right, like, squ like squiggly marks. And some of these things that are more calligraphy type of fonts that I got to be able to see it and recognize it. That's when I know that it's no longer mechanical, but it's more artistic, and I can still recognize those characters. So why is this important? Because when you begin to understand the grace of God, it is not just in one context. You got to be able to see God's grace in all contexts. That's where the art of grace comes in. That you see that when something you don't deserve happens to you, that's grace. When you realize that you have sinned before God and you're still struggling with this, but God still loves you and he is patient with you, that's grace. When some of us, as we struggle and work through things in our lives and we don't see any changes, but we, we trust and believe in the grace of God that gave us more hope and just more fortitude in the things that we're going through, that's just God's grace. When you get into that school or that internship or you get that job, or you find some favor with your boss when you don't deserve it. Or you discover something that helps your company. And they're like, how did you know this? And you're not going to be like, because well, I'm so smart. No. You're going to just be like, you know, it's, it's God help me. That is the art of knowing God's grace. So being released from the law. Quickly here, one of the things we see. Secondly is we are reminded of our sinfulness. So we're talking about being released from the law, and now we want to talk about being reminded of our sinfulness. This is what the law does, that it has to be released by grace. Let me quickly read verse 7 through 14. Listen to what it says. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. 
for I would, have, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But since seized an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin seized an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Verse 13, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. I know sometimes when Paul's writing, it's really hard to understand, so I'm going to try to make it very simple. And when you study it this coming week in Life Group, hopefully you will get more insights. Right now, as I've just read, Paul's been talking about how God's grace trumps the law. It, people began to feel like, well, wait a minute, does that mean the law that was given to us by God through Moses and through all the books of the first four, uh, five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, all the laws there, does that mean that it was all wrong? Does that mean that it was sinful, it was bad? So here's Paul, as he's constantly talking about grace, as he's constantly talking about that you cannot be saved by the law, there were people hearing this and they were thinking to themselves, then the law must be bad. And what Paul argues for is that the law is not bad. You're bad. I'm bad. That's what he's saying. The law is not bad at all. In fact, he digresses now from his flow of thought to address this particular issue. So once again, in verse 7, Paul uses the phrase, by no means. He said that in chapter 6. That's why in the NIV it says, certainly not. The NASB says, may it never be, or the voice says, absolutely not. What Paul is doing, he's defending the goodness of the law. Because he states that without the law, he would not have known sin. Now, pause here for a moment. And even though he said you cannot be saved by the law, and people are thinking maybe then the law is bad. He goes, no, it's good. Why? He says, without the law, you will not know. Or he's speaking to himself, I would not have known what sin is without the law. So think about it. And I shared this before. There are many of you who just recently became a Christian. And you kind of lived your life the way you wanted to live. And all of a sudden, you understood the grace of God or God's love for you, and you decided to confess you confess as Jesus as Lord and Savior and maybe you just got baptized recently or maybe within the last year or two one of the things that you will come to the realization is that as you begin to read the Bible more as you begin to hear the sermons as you begin to study things on your own you're going to realize there are a lot of things in your life that's bad I shared this last week like some of you swearing is like a cool thing you know, it's kind of like, it shows like you're really cool. But when you start reading the Bible, you realize swearing is not a good thing. And so you're like, oh, how do I change this behavior now? Because the Bible said it's not good. Some of you cheated. 
That's how you got your grades and your GPA. And you did all this stuff. Something inside of you tells you that if, if you don't have any church background, maybe this is not good. This is not really integrity filled. But then you read the Bible, you start growing and get to know God more, and you realize, oh, as a Christian, I shouldn't be cheating because that's dishonesty. Same with telling these lies, these white lies or these little lies. Oh, the food is so good. Or like, oh, you're such a nice guy. Or no, you didn't offend me. And so you begin to say these things because before you came to Christ, it was all about self-preservation and it was about saving your face. But then as you're reading the Bible and you begin to be in community, you realize that when you begin to lie, even though it's like a, one of those little lies, it, it, it's, it doesn't honor God. But you've been doing this for 20-some years of your life. How do you change? Some of you have anger issues. Some of us, we struggle with different things emotionally. Some of us are manipulative. Some of you are like little spoiled brats in large bodies, and you, you, you whine, you complain, you manipulate, you try to control people. That's what little kids do. But then you become a Christian, you realize, oh, i got to die to myself, the selfishness, because it's not about me anymore, but it's about Jesus. It's about his kingdom. And in that moment, the struggle begins to grow because now you realize that without the Bible, without the law, you didn't really know that some of these things were bad. It was just accepted in your family, in your workplace, in your school, and in society. So you're like, what's wrong with this? Even pornography. There are people in this world that says it doesn't hurt anybody, but now studies are coming out that it does affect you mentally, emotionally, even with issues of intimacy. And then we read all these things about in Scripture, about living a holy life. You realize, oh, maybe it's not good. So the very thing that you did not know about, now with the Bible, the law, the Scriptures, it's now showing you that some things are not good. What do you do? And this is the reason why I think it's very important. You, you got to note this. That out of all the laws, and especially in the Ten Commandments, out of all the Ten Commandments, do you know which one Paul used as an example? He used the 10th commandment, the last one, which is do not covet. You shall not covet as an illustration to make his point. And the question is, why? He says the law is not bad. You are. The law is good because it helped me to understand sin in my life. Because without it, I would not have known that some of these things were sin. So he chooses the 10th commandment, thou shall not or you shall not covet, because covetousness, listen to me carefully, is one of those things out of the 10 commandments that you cannot see. If you think about all the commandments, those are all things that you could see and you realize, oh, they're violating that commandment. Oop, they're violating that commandment. But you cannot tell if somebody is violating the 10th commandment. You shall not covet. 
Think about that for a moment. You can sit there and like, oh my God, I wish I, I wish I had their GPA. You're coveting. Oh my God, I wish I had their job. You're coveting. Why are my eyes so small and their eyes are so big? You're coveting. Why am I in this situation, but they're in a different situation? You're coveting. And the problem is you can covet without anyone knowing externally that you're coveting. Because it's all in here, and it's all in here. That's why some of you who are really nice, sometimes I get a little bit like, it, it kind of gets me on the edge. You're like too nice. Because I know we're sinful, and, but you're just too nice. And I'm thinking, really? It's like, boom, okay, can you smack me on the other one? Like, I'll get really upset. Covetousness, it's in here, and you start thinking in here. No one knows. And this is the problem. He uses it because he is trying to address so many of these people who have all the externals down, but internally they are wicked. And that is what the law is trying to expose in all of us. That you could be a pastor, you could be a leader, you could be someone who's respected amongst your peers. You could seem like you have everything all together. That's what the world sees. That's what the people outside see. That's what they see in the life group context. But only God sees what's going on in here and in here. So Paul uses this to remind us the law is trying to expose our hearts. Not your behavior, your heart. This is why it is absolutely essential. When he mentions this, when you look at verse 11, you see the phrase, seizing an opportunity. You see that? Seizing an opportunity. It is a military phrase used for an operation or some kind of expedition and is translated as taking a, taking a start point. So what he's saying is that the sin in our hearts and in our lives, that's just the starting point of a military operation that Satan is bringing upon you. That's why the voice translation translates that verse 11 this way. Sin, come on, say this with me, took advantage of the commandment, tricked me, and exploited it in order to kill me. So the law that is good it was supposed to help you to see your sinfulness, but it is through that law we see now that Satan is using to then harm you. Now, some of you are thinking, like, how, how, is, how is it harming me? What is going on? Let me just quickly mention this. This is important. What he's trying to refer to are many of the hypocrites. And many of you know the New Testament in the Gospels that Jesus always referred to these Pharisees and the teachers of the laws and the Sadducees. Because when it came to the law, they claimed self-righteousness. Oh, we obey the law. That's what Paul did, remember? He goes in terms of like obedience to the law, flawless. Like if there was anybody who was zealous and passionate about the law to earn their own self-righteousness, it was Paul. So what he's simply saying is that the people who have not died to themselves 
and to the law and identify with Christ. And now the struggle of sin is not trusting in Christ, but still trusting in themselves as if they're operating under the law. What he's simply saying is this, is that it is going to cause you then to do a couple things. First of all, it's going to cause you to judge other people. Can I just ask you just straight out, are you a judgmental person? You know what? Let me ask some of your close friends. Is he a judgmental person? Is she a judgmental person? That means that you are using the law to then judge other people. To say, look at you, you're not doing this. But this is the second response of those types of people who are the hypocrites and those who are the imposters. Listen to me carefully. They appeal to the law to judge others, but they avoid the law to judge themselves. Did you get that? They appeal to the law and say, oh, look at that person. They're not doing this, this, and this. They're not obeying this, this, and this. But then when they fall short, they avoid the law. They justify, they explain, and they're like, well, it's not really that. And it's That's what we call a hypocrite. And this is what Paul is trying to address. This is why it always leads to legalism when there's no grace. It shows that you're living under the law rather than the grace of God. That's why in order to be holy, to live a holy life, if you bank it on your own self, then there's this high standard that you have. And it's all going to be based on your performance. That's why some of you struggle even more in your area of sin. Because you cannot perform that long in that way forever. You just can't. So because you can't, you start hiding. You start acting. You start doing things to make yourself look spiritual, but deep inside you're rotting away. This is the thing that damages your spiritual life. That's why I, I talk to a lot of people like, yeah, me serving and doing all this stuff, it's really making me struggle. Once again, it's not that you have to, but you get to. And another thing that pops in my mind is this. Are there things in your life that you haven't owned up or you haven't confessed to? That's why you're struggling. And now you're blaming the church, your life group, serving, and all these other things, which in reality, they're not really the cause. It's your heart. Because of your pride, because of your self-righteousness, you cannot say, you know what? I I'm sinning, I'm struggling, and I need help. Because you have too much to lose. And that's why we have a lot of imposters and hypocrites in the church. This is the reason why the world does not want to listen to the message that we have. How about us this morning? Are we trying to obey the law so that we can try to earn our own self-righteousness? I'm wondering, do you see the sinfulness in your own heart? If you've experienced God's abundant grace, you have to know that you have been set free from sin. We're going to take a little pause here and I know much time has gone by, but I, the second point is going to be shorter. I'm just going to give you the solution of what we need to do. 
But I want us to talk about this because this is not something that's kind of foreign or out there, but it's, it's, it's here. All of us, myself included, all the leaders, everyone, we struggle with this in our hearts. And the question is, who's going to rescue us? Who's going to save us from this? But you have to first understand that you have that virus in your heart, in your life, in order for you to be healed. All right, let's go ahead and just close out. I want to give you some practical things. We've been talking about how the power of sin might be affecting you, but it's through the power of God and is working in your heart, in your life to perfect you. So I want to go ahead and cover this last point here. We talked about how we are released by God's grace, nothing else, but it's the grace of God. The second thing is that we are rescued by God's power. We're rescued by God's power. Let me go ahead and read verse 15 all the way through verse 25. It says this, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this blood of body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so that I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Right away, Paul is trying to address this conflict that we talked about, that we see, that there are things that he wants to do, but he does not do. There are things that he should not do, but he continues to do. And that's why in verse 15 and 16, he shares the struggle of knowing what's right, knowing what he ought to do. He knows this, but then his sinful passions and desires just do the opposite. It's, that's why this imagery of the military campaign, as well as war language, Paul is using. It is like this war that's going inside his heart and inside his mind. That he knows what he ought to do. He wants to do good, but he cannot. His members, his body parts, every part of him continues to do evil. That's why it's like a back and forth, going back and forth, battling. And that's why he says, what can be done? In verse 18 through 20, he says that there's nothing good in him. Even though he wants to do good, he can't. It's almost as if he's powerless. And the bad that he doesn't want to do, he keeps on doing it. This is where we come to verse 24, when Paul says, wretched man that I am. Or for some of you, sister, wretched woman that I am. The word wretched, this is important, means a person who is exhausted after a battle. So when he's saying, what a wretched man that I, that I am, he's not saying like, I suck, life is horrible. What he's simply saying is that I'm exhausted and trying to fight this battle with sin. And as if I'm just defeated. That's why this uh, contemporary English version says this. 
what a miserable person I am. If you ever want to see someone who's miserable, it's someone who has one foot in the world and one foot with God. Because they cannot do both, and they're struggling. They're trying to appease everyone at church. They're trying to appease everyone at work or things at school, their own ambition. They're constantly failing in both ends. And you know that feeling. You feel horrible. You're miserable. You're fatigued. This is the reason why living a hypocritical life or imposter kind of life will kill you, not only spiritually, but emotionally and mentally. It will devastate you. That's what sin does. And that's why Paul, as he understands this battle going back and forth, he says, what a wretched, what what an exhausting, fatiguing life this is. Who will rescue me from this? This is the cry of despair and desperation and frustration all put together. He's trying in, in, in his own energy and in his own power trying to overcome. But we see that he cannot. So what does he say? He says, thanks be to God, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, our Lord. That if you've ever been through this battle, you realize that you cannot do this by yourself. This is where you need God's power. You know, when I was in my first and even up to my second year in seminary, it was probably some of my most difficult years putting close to almost 50, 60 hours at church from Friday afternoon all the way to Sunday night. Every night I would get home at 11 or so just because driving the kids because they couldn't drive, so I would drive the kids back home. And I had a carpool just going, just driving everybody. And I remember I was just struggling, and I was thinking, like, this is hard. And on top of that was my own inner demons or things that I know I needed to deal with, and I was struggling through back and forth. And it was so hard. And so there are times when I needed to get away. So one of the places, because my parents live close to Northwestern uh, in Illinois, in uh, the United States, uh, we're right, it's near Lake Michigan. And in Northwestern, they would have this place. It's kind of like there's a pond, but then there's also Lake Michigan. So here's some pictures so you could look at it. So th- they call this known as the rocks. Where If you just say, go to the rocks, everyone knows this. And a lot of times people will paint on these rocks, and they'll paint different messages and do different things. And there are a lot of people who will just sit on these rocks and just look out at, at Lake Michigan. And it's a very peaceful area. And I remember, and here's another picture. You can look at it from the other angle, and you see the skyline of Chicago there. And so this just kind of graces all of Evanston, this, uh, this city there where Northwestern is. And I, I would go there, and I remember those times when I was struggling, that I would go to the rocks, and I would literally think to myself, I don't know if I could overcome this. And there were times, and I, I, I'm not saying that I was thinking about committing suicide. But I just wanted to jump in. I wanted to jump in the water. I could swim, so I wasn't going to die. But uh, and it's not very high either. So I was going to jump in. I'm just like, that's how frustrated I was. Trying to battle with the things in my own life. Trying to serve God and do all these things. And in those moments, that's when God, the Holy Spirit constantly reminded me it is not by your strength it is not by your might but it's by the spirit my spirit God says and all I can do is in that moment just trust confess my own self-sufficiency and trusting in myself 
completely give my heart over to Christ and say, God, do whatever you need to do in me. And that's when I began to feel a sense of relief. Because in this battling back and forth, when I slowly started letting control and trusting God will take care of the situation, and even the battling in my own heart, I have seen him come in his power, not only to help me to overcome, but to give me peace, the sense of serenity, the fullness of trust. Even in that Psalm 23 where he makes me lie down in green pastures and he leads me. I'm wondering who do you turn to when things get hard? When this battle rages within you because you know that there's still sin in your life. Do you try to cover it up? Do you still depend on yourself? Do you try to fix things, take control of things? Or do you just surrender and say, God, I can't do this. I need you. You fall on your knees, fall on your face, and cry out to him. Say, God, I cannot do this, but you can. I'm weak, but you're strong. It's in those moments you're going to experience a renewal of the Holy Spirit coming and filling you once again. The thing that I want you to focus in on is, is, is through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That means he's in control. He's the master. He's not just the savior, but he's Lord. And if Jesus Christ is not Lord over your life, whether you like it or not, he, he will always be Lord because that's who he is. It's, the question is, are you submitting to his lordship? And if you're not, then this battle will continue to rage in and you're going to die emotionally, spiritually, mentally, even physically. You're going to be fatigued. Maybe what we need is to confess, to repent, to pray, and to be in that place where we're in the presence of God. This is why this is the beauty of the gospel. Because when God created all things and it was good, but then sin entered in, that has been the lifelong story of human the human race, where we're trying so hard to earn and we try to do all these things and we get fatigued. That's why the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus came and he got tired. He got thirsty. And he died on the cross through that excruciating pain. So we don't have to go through that to give us the victory. That's why we turn to him. That's why we confess our sins. And believe by faith that his death on the cross allowed us to die to ourselves, die to the law of trying and earning, performing. And now we are resurrected in new life. And that's about trusting in the Father because we are sons and daughters of God. That's why, as I mentioned before, the one thing is simply this, is that the power of sin might be affecting us right now. But it's God in his power that is perfecting us as you turn to him. Can I just give you a couple things to think about this coming week? The first one is this. Practice the abide prayer regularly. We did this this past week, and many of you shared that it was helpful. But just don't do it as an application for one time in life group, but practice this regularly. Pray. And so whenever that struggle with sin comes in, just start abiding, admitting that you're weak, believing in the promises of God. And also begin to understand as you begin to intercede.
that God is going to help you. Make that decision. God, I'm going to choose you. I'm not going to choose this. And then express thanks, believing that in faith that he is going to work. Practice this. You could do it in 20, 30 seconds. Just make it a daily ritual. Just make it something that you do, and you're going to see strength that you don't know where it came from. The second thing is this, is to place yourself with people who are grace-filled. See, some of you have friends and influences that are not very grace-driven. This is the reason why it keeps on reinforcing the works mentality in your life. Some of you don't even have friends around you. You're just isolated. Sometimes you can listen to music to remind you of His grace. There's so many songs that talk about the undeserved love of God. Remind yourself. Surround yourself. Place yourself around these types of people. Why? Because it begins to rub off on you. And also when you start getting negative, they can speak truth to you. Sometimes they are a little bit more mature in Christ. Because they've gone through what you've gone through. So they can say, you know, that's a lie from Satan. Hey, that's not really gospel-centered. That's a very human paradigm, a human works-oriented, performance-driven mindset. So make sure you place yourself. And if you don't have anybody but you have friends, rebuke them as you rebuke yourself. Say, what kind of friendship do we have? Who are we? What are we? Where is this leading to? Come on, man. Let's help each other. Let's speak grace, truth to one another and see what will begin to happen. And the last thing is this. Push God's grace as your first option with other people. What do I mean by that? I think it's so easy to go back to the law. But when I say push God's grace as your first option, is simply say, you know what? I remember I was there. I used to respond that way. I used to do that. So I'm going to give this person grace. That doesn't mean you don't talk with them. You don't correct them. You don't share with it. No, you do all those things. But the first priority, the first thing that you push forth is the grace of God. Hey, I understand where you're coming from. I've been there. To be able to share vulnerably and go from there. I want to close with uh, showing this video that it's been waiting for two weeks now. <laughs> and I thought it was appropriate again. Every, every week I'm like, okay, we're going to show this. This is really, it will connect to everything that I'm saying. But his name is Andrew uh, Chalmers, and he was addicted to drugs. But he went through recovery, and he couldn't, he couldn't fight sin by himself. He tried, but it had to be the power of God working in his life. And then he began to then now, in that freedom, help other people. I pray that that will be the case for us, that even in the midst of struggles and sin in our lives, that we could fully believe that God can work so can we just listen to his testimony, and afterwards we'll pray and close out. And even as he said towards the end, that it's only through Jesus Christ, no matter how dark and hopeless your situation may be, that it's through the power of God, through Jesus Christ, that you can experience this renewal in your heart. I know some of you, the battle with sin, it's not only real, but it might be overtaking you. I want to just encourage us. You cannot do this by yourself. As you heard in the testimony, there are people who are praying for him. There were people who loved him unconditionally. 
And through that, the power of God worked in his life. We want that for you so that you can experience the joy of walking with God. That it will not just be something that you have to do, but it's something you get to do. And that you will be grateful. And as we live this life and under the reign and the regime of God's grace, it will liberate us. That we will want to love God freely with a worshipful heart. And that's my hope and prayer for you. That you'll experience this newness of life, this new obedience that comes through the power and the love of God and the grace of God. May that be for you. So I'm going to pray for you right now. You just bow your heads. I want to pray for you. Heavenly Father, I just pray for every single person who's watching or listening. Lord, that you not only have a plan for them, but Lord, that you are working in their life right now. Even in some of the darkest moments and even in those areas where they feel as if, Lord, you cannot do anything. I just pray that they will come to that realization that they will surrender and see that you're the only one. What a wretched person that I am. Tired, fatigued, trying to fight this on my own strength and power. But thanks be to God, through our Lord Jesus, through our Lord Jesus Christ, who has delivered us and set us free. I pray, Lord, that that power will come right now. And God, put that desire in us to not only to abide and to pray, but to fully let go and relinquish whatever control we're trying to hold on to and believe that only you can do it. Help us to open up to others so that others can come in and circle around us and pray for us and love us so we can experience true freedom. I pray that this coming week that we'll experience great things, Lord, not only through our life group, but even in our own personal times with you, that you'll speak to us. So thank you, Lord, for all that you are going to do. We thank you in advance, and we love you, Lord, so that even though we're wrestling and we're fighting and battling through these issues of sin, God, that we know that you're perfecting us, making us more like you. So not only release us, but rescue us, because we need you. So thank you, Lord. We pray for blessings over every single person. And may this week we could experience the greatness of who you are and the goodness of your love for us. We thank you. We give you all the praise, all the glory. And it's in Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen and amen. Thank you for listening to the Harvest Mission Community Church Podcast. For more information, visit our website at hongkong.hmcc.net.